Church, open your Bibles. We'll be, we'll be back in the book of 1 Corinthians again this morning in chapter 15. I would like to take a moment and just talk to you a little bit about what's happening in some weeks to come. I know many of you have been interested in what's going to transpire come fall. And we are scheduled on September the 12th, that's three Sundays from now, to be back across the street at the ECA. It has been a long journey over here. We, uh, last time we were there was September the 8th, 2020, excuse me, uh, March the 8th, 2020, and uh, we were kind of like everybody, sequestered at home for a long time, then we came over to this building and we started having what were called watch parties, and that was basically we just came to be together and kind of enjoy some fellowship with each other while we watched the service that was recorded online, and then last fall, about a year ago, we started having services here in person again. And slowly but surely, we just watched that kind of grow. And so we're taking the next step forward, and we're going to be back across the street again on September the 12th, and we're going to move back to one service at 10 o'clock. And so go ahead and begin to mark your calendars for that. Now, again, some of you are saying, hold on a second, I've seen some things, and uh, my Edmonds News reported that the ECA was requiring vaccines for all the shows that they put on, and I've got a flurry of emails that said, you know, how's that going to affect us? We have been in constant negotiation with the ECA and consultation with them. They really want our best, I promise you. And they decided that as a lessee or the one that we have the less with them, least with them, that we are not required actually to uh, keep to the vaccine mandate. So we won't be looking for that. We won't be asking questions about that. So uh, we'll just be back across the street. We will keep with masks for our services for now. We're obviously evaluating that with each uh, you know, passing day and each passing week, working in regards with uh, what Snohomish County Health Department and others are advising. So we'll continue to look over that. But again, look forward to that. We're back together then as one church and one service at that time on September the 12th, and we launch a brand new uh, church year together. Well, your Bibles are open. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. We're continuing in the Untangled series and as I told you last week, this is the last big topic that Paul covers in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the topic is resurrection. You remember last week, we covered uh, with Paul the simple or the basic gospel message. And you remember I had you even repeat with me that the basic, basic gospel message is that Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared when Jesus appeared, he appeared to the uh, disciples, the apostles, and then he appeared to more than 500 people, the scriptures say. He obviously appeared to the, the apostles who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and his resurrection, and those are the individuals that he appears to. Now again, as we come to this issue of resurrection, Paul's going to go deeper this week. He's going to get to the meat of the issue. And the church in Corinth, uh, although they have come to know Christ, they have one foot that's in the Bible, one, uh, one foot that's in their new faith, and they have another foot that's still in the world. And we're going to discover that there are parts of the resurrection that they don't accept or that they don't understand, and we're going to discover what some of those are. We know this because in verse 12, which we're going to read in just a moment, that Paul says, some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead. And so again, he's repeating back to them what he's heard some of them say, that there's no resurrection of the dead. The foot that they have that's in the world is in decidedly Greek thought. Let me remind you of what the Greeks thought about afterlife. The Greeks thought 
that the spirit, all of us have a spirit, all of us have a body. They thought the spirit is very good, but that the body is bad. And so when there was a death, then the person that would rise was the spiritual person, but the body would not rise because it was bad, it was tainted, it was evil. And so you were being liberated when you died out of this, this prison that you're in in order to enter into a new life in which you now are unencumbered. And that was their view of the afterlife. So I think that the Corinthians bought into that and said, we have no need for a bodily resurrection because, well, that's bad, and the Spirit is, again, all good. That's likely the backdrop of what they're dealing with. Corinth believed that all people would be resurrected, but it was only the soul that was needed. And so they had no need, and they had a denial of the bodily resurrection, and they had no need for that. So Paul is going to address them today. We're going to be picking up in chapter 15 and verse 12, and let's read what Paul says to the Corinthians. Here is what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He, was, that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have been fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. Today... Paul wants to focus like a laser onto the issue of bodily resurrection. Full resurrection, total resurrection. That's what he's going to be covering with the Corinthians. Speaker and comedian Ken Davis tells the story of a woman who looked out her back window and she saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of a rabbit. Now it happened to be the neighbor's rabbit and she knew that they didn't have a great relationship with those neighbors, so this was on the edge of being a disaster. She went outside, got a broom, and beat the dog so that he would let go of the rabbit. And she held that rabbit in her hands and said, dead, very dead. This is not good. So she thought in a moment of panic what she could do. And she went back inside the house. She bathed that rabbit. She blow-dried it until it was back to its fluffiness. She primped it and prepped it so that it looked you know, kind of right. And then she snuck into the neighbor's backyard and she put it back into the cage. About an hour later, she heard screams from the backyard. And she kind of looked over the fence and said, what's the matter? And she said, the lady said to her neighbor, our rabbit, our rabbit, it died two weeks ago. And here it is back with us again. We, when we think about dead rabbits, know, like the ancient world, that dead rabbits stay dead. And guess what? Dead rabbis stay dead too. N.T. Wright wrote that there were a lot of actually messianic figures in the ancient world that would rise up and all of them had the same fate. 
they all were put to death on a Roman cross because the Romans were against anything that would be an insurgency. But none of the disappointed disciples ever claimed that their Messiah resurrected because they knew better. It was just too, too easy to prove wrong. And so Jesus stands out as the only messianic figure, at least of that time in the ancient world, that is noted to have risen again from the dead. As Christians, we believe in the miraculous. We believe that God put in motion all of the natural laws that are around us, and since He put all those in motion, He has the ability to suspend those when He wishes. And perhaps the biggest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus. God brought Jesus back to life, and that changes everything that we commonly know about life and about death. Normally, death is a very permanent thing. In fact, I would venture a guess, none of us have seen somebody come back to life. Now, you know, again, and by that I mean, and stay alive. Maybe there's been people who have had near-death experiences, but none of us have seen anybody that's come back to life and stayed alive, and that is exactly what we claim has happened with our Lord Jesus. Indeed, in, in Corinth, they had a problem with resurrection, and likely their problem was around a bodily resurrection because they had no need of that. And in our world today, there are still many people that we spend time with that have no need of a resurrection. Let me give you an example. Some of the world's wealthiest people are not trying to uh, think about resurrection, but they're trying to think about life and they're even thinking about eternal life that would be created right here on earth. Author Adam Goldner tells the story of some individuals who are very wealthy that are trying to remedy the issue of death or the problem of death. And it's a cutting-edge effort in order to find uh, ways that they could uh, prolong life and maybe do it perpetually. He says this, there's something about massing more money than you can ever possibly use that naturally makes you hunger for ways to stay alive longer, if not forever. And he uses the example of Larry Ellison, who is the CEO of Oracle Corporation, sixth most wealthy person in the world. And Ellison contributes more than $40 million per year to a cause that's exploring how to extend life. Instead, that he views death as just another kind of corporate opponent that he can outfox. And so Ellison has set up a foundation that is dedicated to enduring life and ending mortality. Ellison says this, Death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person just be there and then just vanish? Goldner concludes the article with this. He says, Death may not make any sense, but perhaps it can be defeated, question mark. Oh, I'm here to tell you that all of them are going to be very disappointed. They might extend life out for a few years, maybe even a couple of decades, but the Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's one they're never going to get around. And so as hard as they try to not need a physical resurrection, it's of vital importance. And it's of vital importance to us and to our, our faith. Paul does something very interesting in this passage today. And he, and, he, and he basically does a little judo move. And he says, you know what? Let's just pretend for a moment that it's true that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Let's just concede that for a moment. And then let's see what plays out from that. And so he gives seven implications or seven things that are consequences that would transpire 
if Jesus didn't rise from the dead or if there was no bodily resurrection. If nobody was able to bodily resurrect, this would be the consequence of that. And that's what I want to cover today is the seven implications of what happens if we don't have a bodily resurrection and specifically, again, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. And ironically, that's exactly where Paul begins. That's number one on his list. The number one implication is if there's no bodily resurrection, then Jesus himself was not raised from the dead. And what that does is that put Jesus, puts Jesus in the category of just being a good teacher. He's not an individual with any power. He has no power over death. He's just left with being an individual who has some very good words to tell us. And again, it's amazing the number of churches today that would be kind of moral goodness uh, centers. They would have no need for a resurrection. They have no need of a cross. They just believe that Jesus was a superior moral example and a great teacher and one to emulate. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is one in which it's that, that we need a resurrection. We need a Savior because we can't accomplish that. And of course, we hang on His words and we want His words, but what we need more is His life that pulses on the inside of us. If Jesus does not rise from the dead, then uh, everything falls apart for us. And again, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, everything falls, falls apart even for the words that He Himself gave us. That leads Paul to the second conclusion or the second uh, thing that happens if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. He says our preaching is in vain. By preaching, he doesn't mean, you know, necessarily the guy in the pulpit that's giving the message. What he means is the message that all of us are sharing with others. That started with the apostles in which they told everybody about what they'd witnessed and they wrote the scriptures, but it extends today to all of us who have a message about a risen Savior that we tell other people. If that did not happen, if Jesus didn't rise or there's not a bodily resurrection, then our preaching is empty. It means it's vain, it's, it's empty or it's a waste of time. And all the meetings that we have like this all the books that you've ever read that are Christian books, all the podcasts you've listened to, all the YouTube messages you've ever looked at, those are all meaningless. They mean absolutely nothing. It's been a waste of time if there is no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, and our preaching is in vain. It leads him to number three, which is that our faith is in vain. By this, he means our faith is empty. It has no foundation. What would be even the purpose of coming on Sunday morning? Why would we even tend a Bible study? Why would we read the scriptures at all? Why would we believe that God is in any way even coming to our aid or helping us if there's no bodily resurrection, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead? Take the resurrection away and there's no foundation left for all of our teaching because we no longer have a powerful Savior. We just have an ordinary man who died a cruel death and there's no power remaining in that. There's somebody that I love to read and listen to very regularly. His name is Tim Keller. I have a picture here of Tim uh, for us. He's a theologian. He's a former pastor, actually, written many, many good books. If you ever run across any of his stuff, read it, because I think he just has a way with words. I discovered this last year that Tim Keller has pancreatic cancer, and that was uh, diagnosed in 2020, and I haven't heard how he's doing, so I intend to kind of look that up, or maybe some of you know. But I love it because Tim Keller is so clear-headed when it comes to theological matters. One of the things that Tim Keller talks about very regularly is the resurrection. And this is what Keller says. He says, Christianity 
is one of the most irritating religions on the face of the earth. And the reason is because it challenges how ordinary people decide what they'll believe. Normally, people decide what they'll believe by reading the Bible and saying, I like it or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had many people say, I could never be a Christian, Keller says. And I always ask them why. And they say, well, it's because of the parts of the Bible that I find offensive. And he says, I remember a couple years ago, he says, when he was pastoring in Virginia, that it was around money that people were really offended by what the Bible said. And then he said he moved to New York and he said what people really found offensive was sex and what the Bible said about sex. As an aside, if he was in Seattle right now, he would find out that people are very offended at what the Bible says about gender and about identity. And so they would be very offended by that. But that's a sermon for another day. Keller says this. He says, let me ask you a question. He says, are you saying that there are parts of the Bible that you don't like and that Jesus couldn't have raised, been raised from the dead? And they say, well, no, I'm not saying that at all. He said, well, every part of the Bible is important, but just for the moment, would you put your ethical teaching off to the side? And here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything that's in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then I don't know about what's vexing you so much because it doesn't matter. But the fact is that Paul in the Bible was more offended about Christianity than all of us. In fact, he was out killing Christians. And Keller says, we don't advise that. But when he realized that Jesus had been raised from the dead, it didn't matter what offended him any longer. It didn't matter because it was true. And we have to keep in mind that the resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event. And if we are uh, uh, believing what the Scriptures say about Jesus rising from the dead, then our faith is, means everything to us. If that's false and that didn't happen, then our faith is very empty. We hang upon the words of Jesus because of the fact that he raised from the dead. The fourth implication of no physical resurrection is that we are misrepresenting God. The writers of the Bible constantly point to the message that God gave them. It was a message they didn't create. It was a message that they received. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then they're a bunch of false teachers. They're blaspheming God. And by extension, every time we speak to somebody about Jesus and about the fact that we believe in a risen Jesus, we are, in fact, blaspheming or we are false witnesses about God. I love the way Eugene Peterson writes it in the message. Eugene Peterson says this, But we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If the resurrection's not true, then by extension, tons of biblical examples are individuals who are falsely representing God. Think about the angels that come to the shepherds. And here they are singing about the glory of one coming like never before who's going to change the whole world. Well, if that Jesus is not going to rise from the dead, they're just falsely representing God, and they're, again, false witnesses. Peter would be a false witness. The gospel writers would all be false witnesses. The book of Revelation, that's the end of the story, would be a false witness against God. We're talking through the, our way through the list, and this is what Paul is saying. If the resurrection is not true then uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're misrepresenting God, and there's more. 
The fifth implication is that we are still in our sins. The death of Jesus was for a purpose. It was for the atonement or the covering over of our sins. And God was pleased to have the penalty of death fall upon Jesus for our sins so that they did not have to fall upon us. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's probably two conclusions. Either one is that Jesus perhaps didn't leave a sinless life and therefore had to pay for the penalty of his own sins, or he did leave a a sinless life, but God somehow said that that sacrifice was not sufficient. Either way, it leaves us in the position of being sunk. You and I are left with the problem of still paying for our own sins, and therefore we are in essence lost. I love the story. It's one of my favorites in the Bible, and it's from Revelation chapter 5. Some of you have read this, and as I recount it, you just feel emotionally with me. John is taken to heaven, and he's around the throne, and all the living creatures and all the elders and all the people are there gathered around the throne, and they're worshiping God. And then one of the angels cries out, Who is worthy to unfold the book? And there is a book that is right next to the throne. And inside that book, you might imagine it's a big, thick book, is all the names of people that have been rescued by God. And the angel cries out, who's worthy to unfold that book? There's a seal around that book that must be broken. And they look all around and they're not able to find anybody. And so everybody's weeping and they're in anguish because they don't know if they've been rescued or not. And suddenly one of the elders cries out, Behold, the Lion of Judah. And John says, As he looked, he didn't see a lion. He actually saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain. If Jesus does not rise from the dead, if there is no bodily resurrection, that story is not true. And the emotional anguish that was felt over not knowing who was worthy, who was able to come and unfold that book, still remains. I'm so glad that that's not the case, but that's what Paul is playing out, is that if, 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 if it's not true, there's no bodily resurrection, sin still remains upon all of us. The sixth implication is this, that those who have fallen asleep have perished. By this, Paul means that those who have gone before us and who are dead and who are in heaven, those are individuals who now have perished and they die, they've died and they're not eternally with God because there's no way for their sins also to be overcome. And so they are not in heaven right now with God secure in His presence. There's a, a story of a church official in rural Minnesota. And in one of his jobs in rural Minnesota was to go out to the locations where there was no church in the rural areas and to perform funerals. He would always go with the undertaker of the town And they would drive out together in the undertaker's hearse to be able to take the body out for burial. Well, he said, one day we finished that service together. His name was John. And John said, I told the undertaker who was driving the car, I'm just really tired today. And so on the way back, I'm going to take a little nap. And he said, well, that's fine. Go ahead. And he goes, you know, I really like to get in the back. I mean, that's a nice flat surface back there. And I just lay down. He said, all right, well, we'll get get in the back, John. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make our way home. Well, on his way home, he, uh, as it were, had, was really close to running out of gas, so he pulled into the gas station. And this was back in the day when there was gas station attendants. And so the gas station attendant came and started pumping the gas. And he noticed, as odd as it was, there is a body in the back of the hearse. 
but there is no casket. It's just laying there. And as he's pumping the gas, John wakes up from his slumber and opens his eyes and looks over. And then he sits up in the car, and then he taps on the window to wave to the gas station attendant, who at that point left the handle on and was no longer to be seen any longer. He was out of there. Imagine that for a moment of what you think is somebody who is actually dead, but now is coming back to life. You know, when we think about funerals, one of the most important parts of a funeral for us is if the person knew Jesus, there is this overwhelming flood of just gratefulness to God and and hope that we're going to see this person again. This is not the end of the story. We're celebrating their life, but there's more to come. And I know you've all felt that when you've put somebody that you really care about, uh, you know, you, you've cared for them and you've cared for them in their death and you've said uh, goodbye, you've released them, but you have this overwhelming sense in which you'll see them again. And Paul says this, if there's no bodily resurrection, that's just fantasy. That, 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 that's meaningless to us. We just go celebrate a life, but there's no aspiration or there's no anticipation of anything that would come after that. All right, there's one more. The seventh implication is that we are to be pitied more than all people. We have uh, staked so much on this message. We sacrificed so much for it. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then we are just a pathetic group of people. I love the way, again, Eugene Peterson writes it in the message. He says, if, we all get, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. Let me tell you the story of uh, a missionary. As Christians, uh, missionaries, uh, some of them who actually are martyred, we always uh, remind ourselves of their stories because they paid the ultimate price for following Christ and believing his gospel message, and that is with their very own lives. With his hands tied behind his back, missionary J.W. Tucker was beaten, and then with 60 of his Christian friends, he was thrown into the crocodile-infested Bumakande River in the Congo. The attack took place on November 24, 1964, at the hands of Congolese rebels. And again, our natural instinct is to feel sorry for Tucker, whose earthly life was seemingly cut short, but life can't be cut short when it lasts for all of eternity. There's a holy empathy that we would have for his wife and his children who survived that terrorist attack, and that is biblically warranted. But heaven gained a hero, a hero in a long line of heroes who traced their genealogy all the way back to the first martyr for the faith, Stephen, in the book of Acts. In the grand scheme of things, God's pleasing and perfect will was, means that eternal gain will infinitely be better than anything that is earthly pain that we experience. If that was the eternal perspective that guided J.W. Tucker to risk all of his life for the gospel, Tucker didn't do that because, well, he didn't do that to save his own life. He had already died to his life. He did that in order to follow Christ, and it wasn't uncalculated. He had a best friend named Morris Plotz, and Morris Plotz tried to persuade him not to go back into the Congo, into the jungle where he went. And he said to him, if you go, you won't come out. And J.W. Tucker told his best friend, God didn't tell me I would come out. He only told me to go in. And so go in, he did. And again, he was martyred for the faith. If that story uh, is true, and it is, 
And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what Tucker did was meaningless. It was stupid. And in fact, what even the Congolese rebels did was stupid because they killed a man who really had no message. If there's no resurrection, then all of us as Christians are to be most pitied because we've sacrificed so much to gain what's so little and what is not even true. And so Paul says again, if the resurrection is not true, we are individuals that are a sorry, sorry lot. We didn't read verse 20 today, and now I want to bring that one to your attention because this is Paul's conclusion. He's given seven implications, seven consequences of if the resurrection is not true, what happens? And now he ends with verse 20, and here it is. Do I have that one? I don't have that one. All right. It says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Jesus indeed is again raised from the dead, and it says that he is the first among many, including you and me, who will rise from the dead because we are like him in that way, and we have a full resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, but also the uniting of a brand new body. And Paul's reminding us that everything in our faith, everything in our message, everything based upon our church is based upon that fact. And if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, if there's no bodily resurrection, everything crumbles. I want to end with a a quote from Wolfhart Pannenberg. He's a famous German theologian. And this is what he says. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event granted. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. And by change the way you live, he doesn't mean, you know, get yourself strapped, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that, you know, go clean yourself up. What he means is, is that you have a deeper allegiance to Jesus, a deeper affection for Jesus. And your life begins to unfold around his desires, around his word, around his path, his way, And if the resurrection is true, you have this allegiance that extends to Jesus. I want to take a moment uh, as a congregation. I want to thank God the Father and Jesus for the truth of the resurrection. And it's one of the foundation pieces of all of our faith. Without that, we are left with nothing. And so it's very appropriate that today we would end with a level of thanks to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that the resurrection is true. We join with Paul today in saying, imagine if it weren't. And imagine all the things that would be chaotic and haywire and truly troublesome to us. But it is true, Lord. And it's been uh, granted that eyewitnesses, so many of them, witnessed that you again were risen from the dead. And we felt the effects of that so many times in our own lives as you, Holy Spirit, have taken up residence with us. Lord, we affirm the resurrection today, the goodness of it, the rightness of it, our need of the resurrection, and we affirm that this is something that, Lord, uh, you've given to us as your gift because you love us. We thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead and that we, too, will have bodies that rise from the dead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.